There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that whilst emanating from within the discipline have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Ray, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. A person commits a murder, a loved one is lost. Femicide, the murder of women or girls, is one of the most extreme forms of gender-based violence and South Africa has one of the highest rates of femicide in the world. Whilst a recent South African Medical Research Council report, which was released in March 2022, has documented a decline of femicide rates since 1999 through to 2017, the fact is that 2,407 women or girls were murdered in 2017. A new study commenced in November 2021. Of course, there are statistics and then there are people. And today we are going to be speaking to the father of a victim, the tragic event, and the criminal justice system, arriving ultimately at the issue of parole for perpetrators and the so-called victim-offender dialogue component of the rehabilitation process of the offender. Is it closure for the victim or their family, or simply more pain? On today's podcast, entitled Victims and Perpetrators, Is Dialogue Necessary or Helpful? I welcome Rob Matthews and uh, Gerard Labaskachny. Rob is the father of Lee Matthews. Lee was murdered at the age of 24 in July 2004. Rob and I have met briefly on several occasions previously, but have never actually discussed Lee's death, and I've always had a deep respect and admiration for how Rob and, and Lee's mom, Sharon, have conducted and carried themselves through the most trying of circumstances. And so I'm most appreciative of Rob's willingness to join this conversation. Gerard is no stranger to Beyond Madness, having been a guest on a previous episode related to serial killers, and I suppose that should be qualification enough. However, he holds two master's degrees, one in clinical psychology and the other in criminology, as well as having a degree in law, an LLB, and a PhD in psychology. For 14 years, he headed up the South African Police Service's specialized investigative psychology section and was the SAPS chief profiler. Currently, he is a director of a company, LNS Threat Management, which specializes in threat assessment. In addition, he holds various honorary academic positions at both the University of the Advertisement and UNISA. In 2021, he published the book The Profiler Diaries from the Case Files of a Police Psychologist. He was also a co-author of the aforementioned South African Medical Research Council report mentioned in my introduction. Robin Gerard, welcome. And thank you for making the time to join me in discussing an important topic, one that has direct relevance to all South Africans. The title of the episode poses a question that I think comprises two fundamental issues, closure for the victim or their family and rehabilitation within the context of accountability and seeking forgiveness for the perpetrator. But within the issue of closure is the process of healing and the emotional journey of either the victim, their family or both. So I think we need to start at the beginning. So, Rob, could you tell me a little bit about Lee? I know that at the time of her death, she was a student at Bond University, but I know a little beyond that. Christopher, thank you. Um, Lee, in fact, was 21 when she was uh, kidnapped and murdered. She had just right. turned 21, and it was the day after that uh, that the tragedy took place. She was a student at Bond. She was doing her BCom with her with the hope of becoming a chartered accountant one day. Right. And uh, she was very quiet and, and unassuming individual. Um, she would be the one in the background from our family point of view. She was a very security conscious, conscious person. Um, and it just shows you that it doesn't matter the disciplines and the things that you have in your environment. Yes. We're all vulnerable at one stage or another. And, it was that vulnerability where somebody that was at varsity with her talked her into giving her lift to the nearby shopping center, and, and that's when the nightmare began. Right. So I think that the issue of vulnerability is very important. One can never underestimate how vulnerable one is and how circumstances can arise from nothing, seemingly. 
at the end of the day. I mean, Lee was simply a university student, as you say, quiet, unassuming, but with a focus. She wanted to do her BCom, yes. get to do a CA, aspirations, a future. She was 21, so my mistake. I thought she was slightly older. But vulnerability. And I think that for me is, 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 is a key issue. And I'm, I'm not sure that we are necessarily always that conscious and, and mindful of our vulnerabilities because I think we don't necessarily want to be overly paranoid. Christopher, I, I, I'm probably a father that is or was paranoid and uh, just goes to show. Um, and I've often been asked, how do you stop your child from being exposed to something like this and yes. and the short answer is you don't know what evil looks like yeah because this individual who took lee's life if you saw him in the street you wouldn't give him a second thought he doesn't look evil and 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 you can only tell what evil looks like post the event and i think that's the vulnerability that we're all faced with people we tend to take people at face value and yes. face value doesn't ascribe any um Background to what they're capable of doing And you're certainly not seeing inside their head No Because I think that the the evil that lurks Is not necessarily overt And doesn't come as a Hollywood movie character Who is clearly described and demarcated as being evil There's often no such indication And I suppose Gerard would will come to that Mm. But the issue of threat assessment Kind of comes into that How do you you assess threat in the Mm. environment Where it comes in shapes and forms Which are completely unrecognizable In terms of constituting Mm. a threat So Rob I know what I have read um, in the media of the circumstances that led to Lee's death. Could you take us through them? Because I think that it's very important to 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 set the scene and just for for listeners to understand they 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 may not know the details. They might not have read about them, and it may have been at a time where they were not necessarily cognizant of what was going on. So I think it's important just to set the scene in terms of what happened, to the best of your understanding, yes. on that fateful day. Christopher, um, we got a, we, Sharon went to go and collect Lee at the varsity, or not collect, but drop some items off, and uh, her cell phone had been switched off, which was unusual. Right. Um, we then got a call from an individual who said uh, they've kidnapped Lee and they need a ransom, and they spoke in the, in the, in the, on the basis that it was somebody um, that had done this before, it was somebody from outside the country, and we were given a whole lot of instructions. And that's your worst nightmare because that's not that's something you see on movies. You don't yeah. you don't see that in life. You don't ever expect to get a call to say, "Please pay X, otherwise you won't see your daughter again." That's not what happens in the real world. In our minds, but yes. in fact, it does happen. Well, certainly it happens, but I'm just trying to think of the initial response to a call from a stranger telling you exactly what they've told you and that sense of no control. Mm. I mean, one is completely helpless under the circumstances or so it feels. And I would have imagined somewhat overwhelmed because you're like, really? What are we talking about here? How, mm. how, how, how is this even possible? Mm. So, you know, he, he claimed to be a Libyan, claimed he'd done it all before, he spoke right. very calmly. There was no rushed conversation. It was all very well thought through and very specific as to what had to be done. Um, the, it went on to the drop-off point that we had to drop money off at a particular right. point. Um, as it happened, I missed the drop-off point, and uh, then I got a call, which was one that was full of expletives and uh, and in fact that probably helped us because at that time he dropped his guard and I picked up a South African Indian accent in, in the in the point that was made to me. Right. And that certainly if I listened to the police that helped him in terms of profiling yes. somebody to look for. So I suppose in that time of crisis it as difficult as it is to try and keep your Sanity yes. or keep your composure with hindsight. That's probably one of the things that helped us to try and get 
a perpetrator to actually try and bring closure for ourselves, that I was able to think through a lot of things at the point in time. But that, that's just good luck. It's got no training or anything like that. It's yes. just purely good luck. And I think often in a crisis, we, we, we all fall into a crisis and fall apart. And so, and that makes it difficult. That makes it very difficult. Extremely difficult to kind of stay focused on the instructions, mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do mm-hmm. to get it all together, which may seem like very practical things. But as a background to that, there is this turmoil, the uncertainty, the not knowing, mm-hmm. the, the understanding that there is threat that some stranger or strangers mm-hmm. have your daughter in their possession, so to speak, and are now holding her hostage and holding you to, to, mm. to ransom. So one is trying to reconcile that, that, that sense of disbelief, but at the same time having to be completely in the moment and reality focused. Mm. I think that is, that is really for me a, a, a difficult. So back to the, back to the story. So I dropped the money off at the, eventually when I found the place that was designated, I dropped the money off. It was collected. The instruction was for me to um, go and wait around. Uh, there was a, there was a, there is a shopping center close by. Go to the shopping center, and I'd get a further instruction as to where Lee would be dropped off. And that never happened. So that night was a, was a terrible night. We chased around. Uh, I had gone to the police at that stage. Yeah. The instruction was not to go to the police. When I dropped the money off, I was. I didn't have the police with me. I did it by myself. So yes. I kept my side of the bargain as I thought. But uh, I thought I'm dealing with somebody who has honor. And yes. that's a mistake. Uh, people like it don't have any sense of honor. Um, well, their I word thought is, I kept my side of the bargain yeah. and he didn't keep his side. No, well, their word is not their word. It's just mm. what they need to say in order to get what they want. And I think that um, one cannot trust but one can hope, mm. and I think that that's really what it comes down to. So the police were informed. Um, you dropped the money. It was picked up. Obviously, nobody was having eyes on that pickup to see who picked it up. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, it was just, okay, I've left the money. You've picked it up, notwithstanding. Now the individual came and collected the money. Yeah, the individual collected the money. Whether there was one or more, I don't know. We don't know. I haven't got a clue. So the money was collected, but Lee did not arrive no. at the appointed time. And no. then, where did it go from there? Well, it then went into Saturday, and by Saturday evening, the investigator at the time, who was fantastic, did a great job for us. Said we don't have any options here. We we really have no leads. So best we see if we can't talk to a wider audience, and so. He set up a, a a press conference, right? And wow, that's um, we got incredible coverage and exposure, and I think that heightened the awareness of what happens, and it certainly created a lot of a lot more focus in terms of people looking for Lee. Right. We had we had amazing calls from people all around the country. Um, to try and help Just as a matter of interest I mean obviously you were receiving Incoming calls to give you uh, instructions Those calls were not able to be traced Or located from a you know Satellite point of view In terms of, of where the uh, call was emanating You, you know Christopher you, you see the movies yeah. So the movies give you this uh, Thing that from a helicopter Somebody's watching where you yes. drop off the money It, it happens so quickly mm. When those calls come in to try and get the appropriate documentation to trace calls, because you went down that road. Yes. It's a nightmare. You, you, you just, the bureaucracy is alive and well. And there's part of me that understands it because yep. there are a lot of scamsters out there. Sure. But when there's a true need and for somebody to uh, get into that profile and, and help, it's, uh, the bureaucracy doesn't move quick enough. Well, I think the perception, and I'm not blaming Hollywood, but created from TV series, the movies, is that there's this group of people just sitting waiting. And that as soon as something happens, they spring into action and all systems are activated and everything is just focused on exactly and it's just going to move from one thing to the next to the logical and hopefully successful outcome. Mm. That's and, and we know it's not like that. No. And, and, and even more so, I mean, we, we were in a really privileged position. 
How much more so for people that these crimes take place and they have nowhere to go, they have nobody to talk to, nobody to assist them, and that for me is the real tragedy of the country. The level of sophistication doesn't exist for the top of the... Um, level of society, society, certainly socioeconomically, yes. Socioeconomics level it, and further down, um, there is no chance. And, and I, and I find that something that is really disappointing. And I don't think there's been any progress since 2004 to date. And I, and sadly, I would think if anything, it's gone backwards. And that's a real tragedy. And I think that's very important because really what you're talking about are systemic issues mm-hmm. where you're saying, well, Lee was a specific instance and obviously close to the heart. But I think that your view of the situation beyond Lee is that, wow, what happens in circumstances Mm. that are not, let me put in inverted commas, optimal, Mm. where there are resources and we can mobilize and we can make things happen. Even there, it doesn't happen as you would imagine it should. And so how is it for Everybody else, and I think that's a very important issue. That obviously, as you say, it was what it was then. We're not sure that it's any better now, and in fact, it might be worse. And I do think that that's something that people need to to reflect on. So ultimately, what happened was Lee did not make it to the shopping centre. How did things unfold from there? The police got involved. There was the press conference. There was a, a, a media blitz. Everybody was aware, and now the search was on. Well, it was a, a 12 days of intensive searching from so many people around the country, um, neighborhood watchers, uh, citizen force uh, folk, retired policemen. It was just incredible. And then on the 12th day, we had a call from a grass cutter that discovered a body um, and it was Lee's body. And her body had been, according to the forensics, dropped off the evening before because the body was still in good condition. No, um, no damage from exposure to the sun had taken place or anything like that. So clearly she'd been stored somewhere in in a freezer condition and I suspect that things were getting too hot because of the search that was taking place. And this individual and or or accomplices Mm. decided that they needed to actually get rid of Lee's body and take her away from the scene as to where she she was being stored. And so that brought with it mixed feelings. It was, it was a, it was a shocker. Yeah. We, we found Lee, but we didn't find her alive. And, uh, and there too is a, is, is, you know, so many people have a story where they have lost loved ones and they've never found or recovered the body. Yes. I can't imagine what trauma exists in that scenario. I'm thinking back to the seventies, Gerard, maybe you might remember, uh, the disappearance of all those young girls whose bodies were never found. I forget the name of the. Gert von Royen, that's exactly right. And so this kind of brings to mind the the not knowing. Mm. There's no closure there mm. because you never really understand what happened. You know, Rob, as you're speaking, and I mean, I don't want to put uh, my own spin on this, but certainly it seems to me that this was beyond an individual. I have that feeling just in reading the circumstances and, and, and just looking at everything that I've read and, and listening to the story, it, it just feels to me that this was not about an individual. There was an individual, but it was not just about an individual. Uh, uh, Christopher, you, you're absolutely right. The, the judge in his judgment and summing up uh, pointed that out as well. He said yeah. this was not done by an individual. Right. Um, the execution of the uh, plan was really clever. Yeah. The drop off was in an area that if I'd been, if I was being tailed, the perpetrators could have got away quite easily because there was an overhead bridge with no access to that bridge unless you had a detour of a couple of kilometers. Right. So I'm of the opinion that this has happened before. Yeah. That there's a team of people that have done this before. Yeah. And interestingly enough, um, they, I received an anonymous call from Somebody post the event when we'd already found Lee's body and this person spoke to me 
and said something similar happened to our daughter. Mm-hmm. It was on a Friday. It was in the same area, mm. similar set of circumstances. And I just want to tell you this, and, and I might want to come and have a discussion with you. Uh, I got a call back again to say we've spoken as a family about this, and sadly, um, luckily for them, they got their daughter back. Right. But from a going public on it, they didn't want to go public. And right. I understand that. Yes. Because, again, you're going to introduce another round of fear because they know who you are. You don't know who they are. Correct. And so it's that sort of trauma that's taking place. If you see your perpetrator and you know what's happening, that's one issue. When you don't know who's behind the crime, right. that takes it to a whole new level because you don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know why it took place. You don't know what happened. What was the reason? Right. So ultimately, the perpetrator was apprehended, or certainly, when I say the perpetrator, one of, yes, one of the perpetrators potentially found guilty of murder, kidnapping, and extortion. I believe that was in 2005, for which he received what I assume were concurrent sentences of 25 years for the murder, 15 for kidnapping, 10 for Extortion, Christopher. No, he he oh. got a life sentence, uh-huh. and there's a big difference. To, and and Gerald will be able to tell you that. But there's right. a big difference between a life sentence and 25 years. Right. So I think we do need to get into that. I mean, this is what I've gleaned yes. from 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 the media, and so because what I'd understood was that in terms of South African law, he was eligible for, but not guaranteed parole, having served 50 percent of the sentence. But I understand, and Gerald, maybe you can just quickly jump in here, that a life sentence is a maximum of 25 years, or not. <clears throat> no, they, I think so. Um, yes. That's a, a very, unfortunately, a very common misperception that even right. prosecutors right. get wrong. <laughs> I've had that quite a few times. Right. A life sentence in South Africa is exactly as it says. It will okay. be hanging over your head until the day you die. Right. The difference is, will you be serving that life sentence in prison, right? Or at some point, will you be granted parole and you will be serving the remainder of it with conditions right. outside in the community? Okay. And under normal circumstances in South Africa, since I think October two thousand and four, yes, that's correct. That yeah. point is two thousand uh, twenty five years before which you would not be eligible to get parole. Right. So that's why people often assume it is twenty five because you're going to be released. That you're not going to get automatically, as you pointed out. Yeah, it's not guaranteed. It's not a guarantee. No. You have to meet certain requirements. So a lot of people assume life is only twenty five. Um, there are one or two high court constitutional court judgments yes. that, that fouled this up a little, muddied the waters a bit. Yes. One was the Parsler judgment, and I can't remember, Rob, do you know the name? Van Veyck was the other yeah. judgment. Yeah. And it had to do with when – one of the Parsler judgment was when this – when it changed from only serving 20 years on a life sentence before you could get parole um, versus 25, and there was a judgment that said it, you know, it, it should be based on when you're convicted or when the crime committed, not when you were gr- given your sentence by yes. the court. Because there were yes. people who fell a few days after that t- point in time yes. in, I think, the fifth of, 25th of um, – when the 4th of October or when it, whenever it was, I yes. wrote it down – um, who were convicted a few days later, and they now suddenly had to serve the 25. And they, but that's unfair. But I was my crime was long ago. I was convicted before this turning point in the date. Yes. And why am I suddenly now, because of no fault of my own in terms of when I suddenly got my judge, my, my sentence was pronounced. And I understand that because you can't retrospectively punish people right. unfairly. The law always says you have to give the, the benefit to the person who's going to be affected. So there were changes in law, basically. And that also is what impact, impacted in, in, in Rob and Sharon's case where Donovan Woodley, who sh- should have actually only come up, I think, 2019, was it? Uh, he should have only come up in um, 2030. 2030, sorry. Yes. Basically uh-huh. 10 years before, 11 years before, yeah. okay. was so actually I, became so eligible. I just want to be clear. So he was sentenced to life. Yes. But does that mean he became eligible for parole after 25 years? Would have. Yeah. Would have. So, therefore, he was sentenced in 2005, so in 2030 is when he should have yep. come up for parole. So, there was none of this having served 50% of his time, because I think that's what applies generally when you get a, a, a prescribed sentence that after 50% you are eligible for parole, not guaranteed, whereas with a life sentence, that's not even possible before 25 years. There are two parts. Right. The, the first part is um, the old law before the two judgments that Gerard spoke about yes. said that 
in Murdi's case, it would have been 25 years before he became eligible for a parole hearing. Not eligible for parole, but no, for no, a hearing. No, for, for a hearing, yes. And before that would have been 20 years. Then along came these two cases, and they made two fundamental changes. Right. The one was the clock starts running from the time the crime was committed. Okay. That put Moodley into the 20-year bracket by some months, literally. Okay. And then there was another uh, case that came up, and it said that it would be unconstitutional for lifers – not to get credit for good service. And that's just, that's just diabolical. There shouldn't be anything other than good behavior, not good service, good yeah. behavior in prison. In fact, if you don't behave well, you should actually get years added onto it. But be that as it may, right. the correctional services were told that they need to go back and look at all these lifers and because the mechanism wasn't, mechanism wasn't in place at the time to calculate and give credit for these credits that came along, they gave credits to every lifer that was serving, assuming that they had been impeccable in their behavior. So, so they got a further six years and some months off right. in terms of time before they could come up for a parole hearing. Right. So for me, there's a critical issue there because good behavior in prison doesn't determine what's going to happen outside of prison. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the fundamental issues that um, one needs to grapple with. And I think when Jared and I were speaking about serial killers, for example, it was precisely that, where what does good behavior mean in prison in terms of parole, in terms of release back into society where the original crime or crimes were committed? And I think to some extent, how do you define good behavior in relation to how it's going to play out in society if you allow somebody out? So I think that's something which, you know, is not necessarily thought through. Mm. Certainly, I don't think in the minds of the general public. Um, so, obviously, Rob, you went through this parole process. But before I, I get your sense of that, and I, and, and I understand that the parole process or the parole hearing was in January 2021. Was that? Yeah, that? it was January uh, uh, this year. This year, so it was yes. January 2020, 2022. Okay, so we'll we'll come to that. But Jared, I wanted to ask you now. Um, about this whole issue of parole, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm going to reference another high-profile parole hearing that's taking place currently, and that involves the Steenkamp family. That's my understanding. And uh, I came across a, a documentary, My Name is Reva, uh, television. And, and, and what specifically caught my eye there was one of the episodes of this documentary was the parents consulting with a psychologist mm-hmm. to determine their readiness to meet their daughter's killer. And obviously that's an issue that we're going to come back to. But just in terms of, 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 of parole, Gerard, you know, what is parole actually? How does one define it and when is a prisoner eligible? And so we'll just walk through some of the yeah. concrete aspects of it. You know, a lot of people have an emotional reaction to parole. I think specifically in South Africa where we're so sick and tired of crime right. that we feel you must just sit there for the maximum amount of years that you are given by a judge. Right. But in reality, you know, almost every single offender is going to come out of prison. There's very few that don't at some point. Even the lifers very often will, you know, if they hit 65, there's a lot more leniency towards giving them uh, consideration for parole. So the reality is we're going to have these people come back out into society. Mm. And if we've just treated them as throwaway objects that we just want to punish and grind, what are we going to have coming back into our society? We're going to reap the, 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 the... What we've sown. Yeah, reap what we've sown in that sense. Yes. So parole really... And until someone explained this to me, I also didn't really get it. So, yes. I mean, I was amongst – perhaps most of the listeners listening to this right now, my attitude is the same. Is that if we wait until that person's sentence has fully reached its maximum term. So, say you got 10 years and on 10 years, he gets – he walks out the front door. Yeah. We can't ask him where he's going. No. We can't control where he's going. Right. We cannot have any mechanism to say you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to drink. You're not allowed to go out at night. We have no control. So you take a person who's been under very strict, rigid, hasn't had to do anything for themselves, literally, yes, uh, for however many t- periods of years, and then suddenly walks out. It's a disaster waiting to happen. Whereas parole at least says, we, if you've done behaved well and whatever their basic requirements are, um, you've shown yourself to be worthy of deserving a parole, um, 
with certain conditions, for example, that someone has to be prepared to look after you. Uh, you're not allowed to do this. You have to report or be in, you know, we can phone any time and check where you are or pitch up, etc. Yes. It's almost like holding that person's hand with conditions that we can monitor. Right. As they sort of take their first steps out in the real world and the things don't go well through whatever, for whatever reasons, they don't abide by those conditions, we can just bring them back inside right. and then they'll have to qualify for parole again. Right. So it actually does make society safer and a better chance that that person would be able to reintegrate back into society and hopefully not commit crimes and also hopefully not be a burden on society. But what you're telling me actually is what should happen generally. Yeah. Because I think what you're talking about, and we'll come back to parole, obviously, is the reintegration process, where with a parole granted, there is actually a very specific set of circumstances that determine how you operate, where you can live, who you've got to check in with, and there's terms and conditions, whereas when time is served and you walk out of the prison… There are no terms and conditions. You're a free person yeah. to do as you please. So I think that's very important because what I'm, as, as I said, what I'm hearing is that actually sounds like reintegration back into society. And coming from a psychiatric perspective, for example, if somebody has been in a psychiatric institution for a period of time, you don't simply discharge them. Absolutely. You phase them back into the community. You phase them back into society. You monitor how do they deal with the activities of daily living. Are they compliant on their medication? How do they integrate back into society with their families? I'm hearing something mm. similar that should be in place as a matter of course. I don't know yep. what your thoughts are there. Yep. But what you're saying is actually the parole process kind of gives us a, a, a certain safety net yep. in a way. Absolutely. And then we can, say we can pull that person right back into prison if they don't comply. If they go so far as breaking another law, of course, yes. they can be charged again with that particular offense and sentenced for that particular offense. So right. it really does give a much better chance that we are safer in society and that that person will be able to go back in, in, and function. Right. Um, which is, I think, ultimately what we all want. Um, so when is a prisoner eligible? So, so, so I think the first thing is that parole is not a Get out of jail card. You just don't get out of jail and that's that. So there are terms and conditions. But when is a prisoner eligible? Because I, I, I'm not sure that people fully understand the technical aspects of when somebody actually comes up for parole, which apparently is kind of automatic when a certain period of time has been served. So maybe you could elaborate yeah. on that. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, because it changed. I think it was two-thirds that they had to serve and it's now half. Yes, I think it's 50% now. Um, and, and that point. So unless you've done something that um, – would cause you to, I know, I think even if you had a further sentence, I'm not quite sure how it would affect your per initial parole date. But at half, you would then come up for your hearings. There would be a sort of a panel that would get together and they'd have to have certain information and they'd make a decision and right. decide, no, you need to go do one, two, and three, yeah. uh, or your behavior's been too bad, etc. And they would then make that decision and then you'd have a follow-up date. I, I think it's every two years, although right. I've heard offenders who've had their review period shorter. So I think what's important for, for, for victims and families of victims to understand is that there's actually a process that kicks in without necessarily you being aware of it, that when a certain period of the prescribed sentence has been served, there's automatically a review that takes place to say, okay, this person is eligible for parole. There might even be a parole hearing. Yeah. Which the families may not be aware of, although technically they're supposed to be informed. Yeah, look, so if you look at the Criminal Procedure Act, Section 299A, if you really want to go look it up. Yes. Um, it actually says that if it's murder or the killing of another person that you've been sentenced to prison for, rape, uh, sexual assault, robbery with a weapon or grievous bodily harm or vehicle robbery with a, of a vehicle, hijacking. Yes. Um, or kidnapping. Um, those are the specific ones mentioned in the Criminal Procedure Act where the person, the victim, or if it's the victim's family, if the person or the victim was deceased, have to be notified about the opportunity to participate. In so the nature of the crime determines that? Yeah. Does that happen? Well, there's a very, very interesting question that was put to Parliament this year, I think about June, right. basically asking how many times were people not informed. I'm not saying they didn't decide, they decided not to go. They, I'm saying they were not informed when right. they should have been. Okay. And they had sort of three years worth of stats. And it's almost either exactly half or more than half that were not informed about the date where their, 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 their offender was, okay. was. And then just one case was like, like 10 over half. And the yeah. other ones, it was significantly less than half where they were informed. So they had no voice in so the overwhelmingly, process. the people not being informed who are eligible to have been informed to participate in this particular process. Just to be clear, 
When you are granted parole, my understanding is that the period of parole will extend to the point when you would have served the full term of your sentence. So if you were sentenced to 25 years, but you got parole after 18 years, your period of parole will be to the end of your sentence. It will be for seven years. So that is correct. Correct. Okay. So, and, and I think we've understood that in terms of the process, there are very specific terms and conditions, like where you live, who you associate with, checking in with your parole officer, etc., etc. Mm. So, the, and, and, and those terms and conditions can be actually specified yeah. and they can be individually tailored depending on the, the yeah. individual. Yes. So that would be correct. Yeah. Okay. So we've touched on it, but then the question is, which is quite germane to our discussion, what is the role of the victim? Or the family of a victim in the process Because we've spoken now about the fact that for certain categories of crime You have to inform Mm. the victim or the family of the victim But having been informed, what then happens? Rob, I don't know if you'd be in a better position Because I think that you're I'd like to just, if I may, add um, some points to Gerard's comments there Yes I think what Gerard has given us is the theory as to what should happen. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and and sadly, there's a very different reality. So if you look at the rules and the laws as they exist, they, they are arguably world class. Right. Um, and I've done some work in there and I've looked at what's happened in, in other countries and and we write up there. And I'm a layman, so I, I, but I'm giving you the – Work that I've done, I've done quite extensively. Of course. The problem, though, is that when it comes to the reality, the resources don't exist. Mm. And so if you look at just overcrowding in jails, (laughs) that is just one aspect. The resources behind that in terms of putting, first of all, assessing criminals, the sort of courses that they need to go on, and Gerald will be able to talk more about that, the sort of outcomes of those, as a victim that has been through this process, yes. the feeling that I get, it's a tick box exercise. Okay. Because the KRAs of the system is such, how many people did I get out of here and get back into society? So when you talk about KRAs? The key result areas of their measurement. Okay. The so key result areas of those people with inside there, in my humble opinion, you can't check your own homework. Right. And so there's no outside checks and balances, and Gerard's in a far better position to comment on that. But there's, you look at the points as far as parole officers. Again, that's the ideal in a movie. You see what is happening, and the parole officer catches this guy doing whatever he should be. doesn't happen in South Africa. Mm. They, during the COVID times, I don't even remember, there were – I'm going to get the the number wrong, but something like 60,000 criminals released because of COVID. They were put on early parole. Early parole. Early parole. Do you know that I could not find anywhere or anyone to tell me how many additional parole officers were appointed mm. to look after that situation? That's diabolical. As a law-abiding citizen, I have a big problem with that because all I'm doing is I'm releasing more criminals out into the country out into an environment that they are going to potentially reoffend because there's no parole officer looking after what is happening and how they are conducting their lives. So the theory is great. Great. Let's have a reintroduction. I buy into that, that you have people that are getting into society, back into society, and there's a whole hand-holding process. Yeah. I would love to know where that has actually happened in the South African scenario. Gerard runs a Twitter feed on the number of botches that have taken place where people have been let out yeah. and reoffended at murder level. Not he hasn't looked down at the bottom. Yeah. He's looked at those guys that have reoffended as murderers. Now that has to tell you that there's a problem. Absolutely. And I think Rob, just to jump in before Gerard comes back to to, to comment, um, once again it speaks to so many aspects of 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 Society where there are policies, but the practical application falls flat because a lack of resources and a lack of governance. Or political will. Or political will. So I think 
you're emphasizing something very important with specific, you know, uh, uh, reference to the parole process and the lack of parole officers. Gerard? Yeah, I mean, thanks. You know, as Rob mentioned, I, it's my personal passion whenever yes. I come across cases where I hear a paroled person commit reoffending yeah. and just the serious crimes, as, as Rob mentioned, I put it on my Twitter. And that's just the ones that I come across. I right. mean, it's not as if I have some system that automatically picks these things up for me. And it's really, really horrifying. The bungle upon bungle, you know, you have people who committed a crime, went out on bail. Then they go to sent, they get sentenced, they come out on parole, they commit another similar crime while on parole. So you've already broken bail, you've broken parole, and then you go do again another time you get parole and you commit another, for example, murder. That was one, that was probably the worst case yes. that we came across. And this guy ultimately turned out to be a serial murderer, a big, pretty, pretty much because he'd been allowed back into society each time. So that's kind of the, 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 the very scary stuff. But I always say that parole, parole starts the moment you walk into that prison should be the start of it because it doesn't help 20 years from now. Oh, what do you need to do? Okay. You suddenly scramble to tick the boxes, as Rob quite rightly points out, which means very often doing a couple one-day courses on mm. anger management, etc., which are pretty much you just not fall asleep during. Right. Um, but when you arrive, the first problem is, and this is going to be quite hor- horrifying for people, is people probably assume that when that offender arrives at prison, their, their history is with them. A copy of the police case file, the judgment from the, the trial, the findings, the reports that might have might not have been used in the trial come along with this person to prison. It doesn't. All the correctional services might know about this individual, and this was even a high-profile case, is he's convicted of one-times murder, for example. Right. That's all. For example, if you look at it, I mean, the Matthews case was one times murder. Then you also have the Velcom case where the couple lured, you know, that young guy to the graveyard, killed him, mutilated his body, yes. kept body part. That's also one times murder. Very, very different people. Oscar mm-hmm. Pistorius is also one times murder. Three, three people have the same conviction, basically, but are very, very different in their risk profile. But they don't know that. So you start off not knowing actually enough about this individual, at least in terms of what crime they committed. Right. What you should be doing is having that information and then doing a proper risk assessment, the same tool that I would use 20 years on the line when I'm assessing you if you're ready to be released on parole. And these, these risk assessment tools exist. They're standard. They've been developed all over the world. Apply that at the start. Yeah. Then I see, okay, you have X, Y, and Z risk factors that, are, that we can actually do something about. That might be substance issues. It might be attitudes. It might be this, that, or the other. So in the next 20 years before you come to parole, you need to address all those issues through courses, psychotherapy, this, that, that when we get to your parole period, mm. you know, however many years later, yeah. we reapply that same tool and say, yeah, actually you've dropped in risk because all those things you've successfully addressed. It's not a guarantee you won't go out and do it, but we can at least say we've worked on the risk factors that we could work on. And those are at least for now off the table, but we don't have that. So it's almost to say we, if we just focus on the parole part, it's, it's almost the, the tail end when it's too late. You need to start from the moment that and people don't get this type of thorough, proper um, risk factor risk assessment when yes. they walk into that particular prison, looking at what do we need to work on to try and make you less of a danger when you walk out of this place in X many years' time. Well, it sounds very limited, and it, 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 it kind of brings to mind the fact that if somebody has a psychiatric diagnosis of, let's say, schizophrenia, that's just a, a diagnostic mm-hmm. term. You obviously have to fulfill certain criteria, but the reality is each person is an individual. And I have to look at the individual circumstances, their family connections, their past history, what's the likelihood of their being compliant, they will be discharged where, to whom, when, you know, so it's, it, it's a very individualized process and the criminal justice system simply doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm understanding. And as a consequence, by the time you get to parole, all of these things that should have been happening all along on a continuum, mm-hmm. then suddenly quickly get dealt with there. Yeah. And to what extent is there any preparation? Maybe really interesting to somebody to do a study on, for example, like a hundred offenders, whatever crime and look at how long they sentenced and at what point do they start doing anything about their future? Yes. And I can almost guarantee you it's probably in the last year or so or two before they're eligible for parole that suddenly they start to, Ooh, what do I need to do? Yes. For the majority. I'm sure there are ones that from day one start to try and change their lives, etc. But I think that would be a very interesting study for someone to actually do. And of course a study to look at the consequences of who 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 reoffends later. Um, and is it a particular parole board that's very bad at making right. these decisions? I don't think there's any statistics even on failures of parolees. And what was the and, preparedness for parole? Yeah, what I think, type of offenders? Did yeah. they reoffend in the same way yes. or a different way? So if you came in as a sex offender, you get paroled, 
do you become a financial crime offender? Right. You know, the, I don't think there's any of those types of studies. And how are we going to assess, manage the problem if you've never assessed the problem? You see, I think that there must be a, a, a sense that if I sentence you to 10 years, you serve your 10 years, you go out, that's it. You've paid your debt to society and you're now a free person. And there's no consideration of the possibility of recidivism and re-offending and the need to prepare somebody who has committed a crime, actually, for re-entry back into society as a non-criminal. Mm. Having served time. And I think there's a, there's a huge gap. And I think again, what we're pointing to is a systemic issue yeah. with a whole ethos of, so we have a prisoner who's committed a crime. They will be technically released after so many years. How do we ensure that when they re-enter society, mm. they are ready to re-enter society as non-criminals mm. having served their time? And I think that that's a huge. Huge gap. And what I always like to say is, you know, when the court sits there and has to make the very difficult decision on what sentence should I give an offender, yes, there are certain crimes that have a minimum sentences attached to it, which is the, the sort of starting point. Right. That you're going to get a life if you commit a premeditated murder. Yes. His defense lawyer can try and argue exceptional circumstances, of which are very limited, to try and pull that down from a life sentence to something else. But – when that judge or magistrate has to make the decision, they're looking at various factors, the offender, the offense, society, the prevalence of this offense in society, punishment, retribution, rehabilitation. And so they combine all of those factors when they say, I'm going to give you X amount of years for what you've done. Right. But it also to me seems like the parole board just focuses on, um, do you feel remorseful and how well have you been in prison? Which <laughs> – are kind of touching a one or two of those things that the court is just, they're not taking into account the same factors. And I often say, you might be real, you might be rehabilitated two years into your 10 year sentence. Yeah. Does that mean you've finished being punished? Yeah. Because Fair you enough. also have to look at it where people don't see, well, wow, this guy killed his wife and he was out after five years because he behaved well. Wow, it's almost worth the risk, isn't it? Sure enough. So we have to also consider, and, and that's not what parole boards are considering. Like, right. have you actually been punished? If you've killed 20 people, you get sentenced at the same day for those, if it's a serial murder, for example. Yes. You go to court for those 20 cases or 10 cases. You get life for each one of them. Technically, at 25 years, you are eligible. eligible right. Because they all start at the same point in time when you get the sentence. They run concurrently. That's the phrase right. that we use. We don't have any other way of doing it in South Africa. So, but at 25 years, you've, you've still killed 20 people or 10 people. Yeah. Should you be released? That's a good question. Is, is, have you been punished enough for killing 10 yeah. or 20 people, irrespective of whether you may or may not you know, be a really wonderful person and rehabilitated and, and had some amazing insights? And shown remorse. You, you know, and shown remorse. <laughs> So I wanted to bring Rob back in to understand your experience of the parole board because I think that there was a finding or there was a recommendation. My understanding is the parole board makes a recommendation. It goes to the Minister of Correction. Yeah, Yeah. and it goes to the Minister of Correctional Services who then has to sign Mm -hmm. off. So in the case of Lee's murderer, um, he was not granted Parole is that is that, is that correct or is that so been the recommendation from the parole board and this is their wording that it would be an injustice to society if he was let out on parole at this stage, right? And that was the recommendation that went to the minister, and it could take anywhere between two months and two years before the minister comes back. So there's no prescribed period that says, listen, the parole board has made a recommendation. You've got thirty days to no. approve or no. to say. And I think one of the practical delays on that side is that the minister first sits with a little panel of people and then he makes his final. Okay. So, but to get that panel together, as I understand, as you can imagine, these are high-level people and okay. the minister, let alone in their schedule. And the amount of new people who are submitting, you know, who are being forwarded their parole considerations right. to, that, to the minister – I don't think how I don't know how they ever going to get through it. So what you're saying is that there's a so there's further a practical delay. So there's a further review process beyond the parole board, where the minister will sit with advisors to actually review what the parole board has recommended and the basis for their recommendation. Yeah, technically, the minister, as I understand it, could overturn the parole board's recommendation. Yes, and, and vice versa. If the parole board recommended that Alifa get released, and there was additional compelling evidence that the parole board had not taken into account, the minister could overrule them. Those are the arguments as I understand it. Yes. Um, But – Now, you you had an experience of the parole board. What was your experience of them? Three, it's it's tough. It is emotional. Yeah. It brings back 
all those feelings from the past. And in addition to that, you sit in front of your daughter's murderer. Right. And, and seeing him? So, well, it brings a whole lot of other secondary victimization, if you like. Yes. The problem, though, Chris, is that if you don't go and put the victim side to the parole board, the parole board are only going to hear one side. Yes. And their side that they're going to hear at best is going to be colored. All right. Because, again, remember my point on the KRAs, the folk inside there are doing their best to get to rehabilitate these folk. Yes. And to Gerard's point, the part that I never heard in the discussion was paying for the crime that you did. Yes. So in our case, Moody presented um, information that he had been a model prisoner since he'd been in there, uh, he'd done all the courses, ticked off all the boxes, and in fact was leading a life of helping other prisoners and, mm. and so on. Helping himself too, I believe he studied. Uh, sure, sure, sure. And it's only when you as a victim have the chance to put forward what really happened yeah. and what impact that had on us as a family mm. and as a community, that's when I think you can bring a perspective. So I don't think you have a choice. You have, have to, to, as a victim, go there. Yes. And and sadly, it is a second round of victimization. But here's my big problem. Yes. There's a case where a young child had been murdered. I think it's Van Veik, not sure, a youngster. And the parents went off to court for the hearing, for the, for the, for the case was being heard. And they got told, sorry, it's been postponed. Right. And there's a family that battled to pay to actually get to the court hearing. Right. Now, let's take it to a parole hearing. There are folk out there where they too have lost loved ones. And the system is not user-friendly right. to facilitating those people to come and put their side of the case forward to the parole hearing. Why don't they get some sort of form of compensation to pay their travel costs yes. to get to the parole hearing? Why not? Why shouldn't they? The, the offender is sitting, he's languishing in jail, but gets uh, three square meals a day. Right. Not great meals for sure. Yeah, yeah. But the folk out there, there are many folk out there that don't even get three square meals a yes. day. Why shouldn't the system pay for them to come and be able to present their case and share the pain and the hurt yes. that's going there? And because we are people and the parole board, good or bad, they are only people and they will listen to what the individual has to say in terms of their hurt and what's happening. I think there's a bigger problem. Yeah. And I think where this thing falls in a hole, and adding to Gerard's point, is that let's see a, 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 if you take Lee's case, there was a an alleged murderer found or somebody that they thought had committed the crime. He went to a bail hearing. Mm-hmm. Bail was denied. Went to a court hearing. There was a judgment. There was a, um, a request for a um, what's the word I'm looking for? He asked. He, he wanted to appeal uh, some of the judgments, whether it was the finding of him being guilty or the sentencing. This went on some six or seven times that this happened. In each one of those situations. The press, if they so wished, could have gone to that hearing. The press, if they so wished, could have gone to that hearing. That puts a whole lot of other profile in terms of the players in the justice system to make sure that they've done their homework. Right. Because it may just leak out there that somebody's done a shoddy job, and how many times haven't we seen that? Okay. It then comes to a parole hearing. And it's in closed doors. There's nobody. There's nobody from the press that is allowed to participate or not participate, to but be part of that. And the one thing that I that I believe has helped South Africa and its democracy and the problems that we've had has been the press. Right. The press have highlighted and pointed out 
many shortcomings. Mm. And so I think that that's the element that's missing in the parole process that takes place. Secondary victimization, it's going to happen. Right. But if you don't go there and you're interested in finding justice for your family, you have to put yourself out there to, to go there. So, but there should also be, if I may add to that, yeah. there should also be counseling for those people after the case. Well, I think that's, that's, that, that's one of the issues really in, in terms of not just after but in f- before. Because you have to prepare somebody, and I think that's what uh, struck me in terms of the reverse income situation, yes. where the parents were going to be receiving some kind of input from a psychologist in terms of their preparedness. So I think there needs to be pre and post available, and I think that a lot of the emphasis is on the perpetrator, and there's not sufficient facilitation of getting the victim or the family of the victim to the parole board hearing and having them adequately prepared for adequately prepared for what they're going to encounter and how they're going to deal with it and how they're going to be supported after because of the secondary victimization. And I just then wanted to bring it to the so-called victim-offender dialogue because I know that that was something that was offered and I know it was something that you said, no, we are not uh, going there. You know the problem with all these terms, there's a, there's a leaflet and it's a, it's not an A4, it's the smaller A3, whatever. And right. It, and it purports to describe all the activities and processes in there. The truth of the matter is that nobody, there's no one person that has a full understanding of everything that happens. I would submit that <laughs> the exposure that Gerard has had probably makes him an expert. And, and he's, I think by your own acknowledgement, would say it's limited. Yeah. There's nobody that has the ability that, that understands how the system works. Yeah. So you get these terms. I got called to come to a victim offender dialogue. Yeah. What I want to see my daughter's murder for. I Correct. Didn't understand the concept. Nobody had actually prepared us for that. And and we're not in we're not in a, in a bad socioeconomic position. How much more so those folk out there that don't have a clue? And, and so Moodley could have got out. Mm-hmm. If we didn't have the second round, and because he actually went to a parole hearing, and thank heavens, without us, and thank heavens, there was a policeman present on the parole board that said, "Whoa, this is this can't be happening." Mm-hmm. He knew what was supposed to happen. Was, he knew what was. And this supposed was after the Matthews family had been in constant dialogue with correctional services up right. until. A month or two well, before Once this. a year I was So I think know, it's Saying it's, we want to participate And then they kind of Literally I can only say They snuck this Try to sneak it through the back right. door and, Or the system is so incompetent right. That the person you're talking to About wanting to participate Doesn't actually know About when this person And that was because You were just sort of Planning for the future Right That you know If God forbid you're not around when, when he was supposed to come up for his parole hearing in 10 years' time, that right. there would be a, a bundle of information available. And it's through that that we stumbled upon. So, so this Victor-Offender dialogue sounds very nice in theory. I know, and I'm going to reference the Amy Beale murder back from 1993, Gugaletu, four men stoned, stabbed to death, Amy Beale. Um, the TRC pardoned them. It was politically motivated. Father shook hands with the killers, supported their release. So, I mean, in that instance, there was a process that that, that took place. Obviously, I think it's very individual, mm-hmm. and I don't know that this victor Offendum dialogue, which would be very nice to kind of wrap it up in a nice bow and say, well, everybody's reconciled and we can all move on, and the perpetrator's been uh, uh, rehabilitated, and the victim or the family of the victim have, have made peace with things. I don't think it's that straightforward, actually, and I, I understand that there's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, and I know it's been very difficult for you, Rob, and the family. I know that Amy Beale's parents started a trust, and I know that you set up a, a trauma center in Lee's name. Do you just want to briefly tell us about that? Yeah, Christopher, we, we, we were the beneficiaries of such a lot of goodwill, and so we felt that we would like to put something back into society. Yes. And we were able to afford professional counseling. We were able to get onto that journey of rehabilitation because of the situation that we face ourselves in. Too many other people are not in that position. So we opened up um, a trauma center to help those people who are victims of crime that there are counselors that could help them put their lives together. Right. For whatever happened. 
and there are some tragic stories. I don't know the details because obviously it's a, it's a very professionally run organization by yes. professional people. Yeah. But there are people that come to their trauma center that have had to big borrow bus fare to come to us and get counseling right. for their situation. Or they work in environments where there's no money. Right. And as much as we spoke earlier on about how do you rehabilitate an offender, it's just as important to rehabilitate victims. In fact, in my opinion, even more important because the victim is a victim of those circumstances. They did not perpetrate the crime. They did Absolutely. not choose to be the victim in that scenario. The offender chose to do what they did, and yet they have the ability to get help training, whether it's short in terms of what it should be, it's still there. Yes. The system is really short on supporting the victims. And that was our desire yeah. to help with the Lee Matthews Trauma Center to try and put them back into society. I think very important and a very important perspective. So I've got to wrap up, unfortunately. But President Ramaphosa once said, life means life in reference to those serving such a sentence for crimes against women and children. So I suppose we take him at his word. I'm not sure that the law operates that way. Personally, I'm, I'm not sure what rehabilitation means within the context of murder. And if there is remorse, does it diminish the loss? The willful and intentional taking of a life where the victim poses no threat to the perpetrator is hard to understand, albeit that one might find psychological or other reasons to explain it. It doesn't change what has happened. And in this particular instance, in terms of what we've been talking about, I do wonder about the parents of the uh, of the perpetrator. So, Robin Gerard, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your willingness to share of your time and, and knowledge, and to Rob, a special thanks. So, the question posed in the title of today's episode was not rhetorical, but we did not specifically answer it. However, I'm sure that listeners will certainly reflect. And to end, some words from the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu that I think will have relevance for our conversation. True conciliation is never cheap, for it is based on forgiveness, which is costly. Forgiveness, in turn, depends on repentance, which has to be based on an acknowledgement of what was done wrong, and therefore on disclosure of the truth. You cannot forgive what you do not know. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness, in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time.